0: Welcome to the RACGP Future Leaders podcast series. My name is Vicky Moriarty and over these episodes I will be exploring leadership topics with organisation leaders who have demonstrated their ability in their respective fields and whose story we hope will help guide and inspire you on your own leadership journey. Today we are talking to Professor George Kalis who is Professor of Management at the School of Business at University of Notre Dame in Fremantle and also Executive Chair of MG Kalis Group. Welcome. Thank you very much Vicky. So to start with, um, you hold senior leadership positions in both business and academic settings. What demands do these two different working contexts place on you as a leader?
1: So Vicky, I find that the uh, academic not-for-profit area tends to be very good at issues such as mission and values, but not so good on issues such as profitability and operational effectiveness and efficiency. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the more corporate world, it tends to be the reverse, which is the corporate world is very focused on profit and effectiveness and efficiency, but not so focused on mission, purpose, and values. Mm-hmm. So it's about getting a balance of those factors. And so when I tend to work in the corporate area, I tend to be a little bit more focused on purpose, direction, and mission, mm-hmm. and working in the academic area a little bit um more focus on: Are we doing this in an effective and an efficient manner? Okay, okay, great. And
0: in terms of your career development, um, were there any catalysts or significant events which led to a change in how you developed as a leader?
1: So in my case, I became CEO of the MG Catalyst Group uh, back in the nineteen nineties mm-hmm. unexpectedly. Okay, uh, I was uh, only twenty nine. I just finished my MBA, mm-hmm. and I was the uh, deputy. Uh, managing director or deputy general manager and uh, the managing director left suddenly for unexpected reasons right, yes. and so i was sort of thrust into the position mm-hmm. initially in an acting and then a permanent basis so that was really good experience because there's no doubt there's nothing like learning yes. from a challenging environment mm-hmm. Uh, And I sort of worked into issues with our customers, our employees, the board, the shareholders. So suddenly there's a lot of range of stakeholders I had to satisfy. Okay. So one of the things I learned uh, very quickly was the importance of really starting to focus on the important issues Mm -hmm. and not allowing yourself to get distracted by issues that need to be dealt with but they didn't need to be dealt with immediately. And in fact, trying to deal with everything at once sometimes leads to an area of crisis mm-hmm. rather than an area of competence you're getting on with the job. So um, some of the early things that I did in that in that initial period was a bit of experimentation. I actually got rid of all of the committees yeah. in the MGKLIS group. Okay. They will put in place as uh, very sensible control structures, mm-hmm. but they've got a life of their own. Mm-hmm. And I think I learned from that the the problems of moving into a structure where people behave as they behave to some extent because that's the way the structure is set up. If you want group responsibility um, then committees are great. If you want to drive individual accountability, Mm -hmm. committees can actually weaken that individual accountability. Okay. Now I also learned that you've got to be a bit flexible as a leader, I did then realise I needed to say to them, look, if you really do need a committee, then yes, you can reform the committee if you wish to. Yes. But as it was, only one of the committees of about five we had at the time actually got reformed.
0: Okay. And, and which one was that? That
1: was a research and development committee. Oh, and okay. that's because it required expertise um, and external expertise as well. Mm. So it was the best uh, way of bringing in that external expertise in relation to our research program, yes. um, was to actually have a committee with a group of people internally and people externally.
0: Yeah. And did that then give you data that helped you make decisions within the business?
1: The research and development committee? Yes. Yes, look, it, it, research develops a long-term prospect as well, so mm-hmm. it needs to be sustained over, in, in our case, it had to be sustained over decades because related to some key genetic work in relation to pearl oysters at the time. Oh, so I we see. knew that it needed yeah. to be sustained. Yeah. So um, I'm not against committees and I hope that comment just showed that. Yeah, yeah. It's really about saying why are they there for? Mm-hmm. Why are they there? And a lot of structures in organisations develop Mm. but are no longer there for a purpose. Okay, yes. Yes. And so I think when you come into a a senior role, Mm. one of the questions you need to ask is, do these structures now have a purpose? Mm. And part of that is also giving respect to the past Mm -hmm. and saying, okay, why are they there? Because usually they were created for a purpose. Yes. And so you shouldn't just, uh, as I said, allow them to reform. Mm. There were some that were there for a purpose. Yes. But some had just kept on going.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So as part of the organisation's culture, that was an existing structure in, in operation? Is that yeah, the- I think
1: it's... Um, people are reluctant to be the ones to put their hands up and say, this is just not working.
0: Okay, yes. Yeah. In most yeah.
1: organisations. Mm-hmm. Because... And sometimes it's one of those uh sort of questions if you individually asked everyone involved in a department or a committee saying is this working yes then they would individually say no yeah but if you ask them collectively as a group then they'll all go along because i think everybody else is going along and mm-hmm. there's a degree of peer group pressure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh i mean this connects through to some of the behavioral science behavioral economics work that's happening yes. which is how do you frame the question mm. And if you frame the question to the group or frame a question to an individual, they're framed very differently and you can get very different results from the same people. It's not that they're lying or they're giving you the incorrect information. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's framed differently. Does this committee work for you is a different question than framing as should this committee be wound up, which sounds like it's uh, to some degree a... a negative aspersion on the members of the committee yes. and possibly the senior executive that set the committee up in the first place. Yes. So it's yes. a good example of you know, this sort of framing of a question mm. becomes very important mm. in relation to strategy and management.
0: Okay. Where did your interest in behavioural science and behavioural economics stem from?
1: Uh, I think it from uh, about 2002 and mm-hmm. I was in New York and actually uh, went to a lecture by Dan Kahneman oh, who won okay. the Nobel Prize in economics for his work there yes and there's no doubt that having that wonderful experience of hearing the person mm-hmm. speak personally the room was packed and that's the other thing the room was packed it yes. was a business conference you just you could see that people wanted this was new yes people wanted to hear about this people could see that this was really going to be an important thing Yes, and I got carried away so stayed interested
0: that's great that's fantastic and it seems to um, be increasingly at the fore in business. Uh, this uh, this approach to decision making um, being informed by uh, behavioural economics and behavioural science as a whole. Um, and one of the things that we're exploring in the leadership program is strategy and how you formulate uh, strategic plans. So I'm going to differentiate between strategic thinking and strategic plans. Um, how do you think your previous experience of implementing a strategic plan for example has been affected by what you know now
1: i think that <coughs> a plan has a different purpose than strategic thought yes and a plan a plan's purpose is to coordinate mm. and program action mm. and in particular if you need change mm. now people will default to the easy position yeah. and part of the um, the behavioural economics, uh, behavioural reasoning area, behavioural science, is that there's sort of type 1 and type 2 thinking. Mm -hmm. So type 1 thinking is intuitive, effortless, based on expertise, based on the existing system. Yes. Type 2 is hard work, um, you extend yourself beyond your comfort zone. It's new information. You need to integrate that. Mm-hmm. So you've got this type one and type two thinking. Mm. And I think a lot of the time strategic plans are important because people's default will be to default to what they are comfortable with, that's easy, and they feel master of it too. Yes. It's yeah. a, the type two thinking, you know, it's almost saying, I am ignorant, I need to learn. Mm. Um, it's hard. And that's very difficult for people to be doing in an organizational setting when you have a lot of other pressures on you. And it's very easy to default. No, I did it this way a month ago. Um, I have a lot of pressure on me. I'm not going to do it the way I agreed to do it only a week ago Mm. because I don't have time.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And so planning and plans program the activities that you need to take place. Yes. Furthermore, the bigger the organization, the bigger the coordination problem. Mm -hmm. And so... Big organisations. There's some questions in the literature about um, how useful strategic plans are, yes. but I think mm-hmm. most writers would agree. For very large organisations mm-hmm. that want to coordinate across different divisions, you have to have a written plan. Yes, it yeah. would not just happen by itself, yeah. as it might do with, say, an organisation of uh, fifteen to fifty people.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And can you give us an example of a strategic plan that you
1: have implemented in the past and and what worked and what didn't? So I think the um, strategic plan that certainly I've implemented was when uh, the University of Notre Dame opened a Sydney campus Mm -hmm. and I went there as the assistant provost, which was a senior academic on campus at the time. And that was a challenging environment. People needed to be on board and we had a time frame. Yes. Because we knew when we were going to have our first students. I think in those cases, you absolutely need a plan because you need to know what happens now. You know, when do you start recruiting? When do you start recruiting staff? Sorry, when do you start promoting to students? Mm-hmm. Um, we knew when the doors were going to open. Yes. So I think there those are sort of projects that really need a plan. They need coordination and time-based. And I think that that strategic plan about how we went to the Sydney community, the people we got on board, um, but then putting all of that in a framework was really effective for the university.
0: So did you engage in a degree of consultation with community as part of what you did?
1: Um, We did. It was uh, as uh, Notre Dame, like many mission Based organisations, yes. it decides where its mission leaves it okay. and then works out how it's going to achieve it. Mm-hmm. As I said, that difference between a business and a, um, a mission based organisation, yes. like the University of Notre Dame. So we decided, Vice Chancellor decided that uh, Sydney was the right place for us okay. and then the rest just got in there behind and, and yes. helped make it happen. And, and getting in behind.
0: Leaders is really important from that point of view in
1: order to be... It is. And the senior management are then leaders themselves. Yes. And so it's always really useful. That's the other advantage of a plan, this coordination consistency. Mm. So I knew the messages that I needed to give to the staff about where we're going. I was recruiting a number of staff from Sydney. They had not heard of the University of Notre Dame. Mm. They weren't all that convinced the concept that a West Australian university should even be in New South Wales. Yeah. So it's good to say, well, this is our difference. This is what we're about. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of people we're looking to recruit. Yes. And so they're the circumstances that having this more detailed planning process really helps. So I knew when things needed to happen by it and the people I was reporting to um, in a similar fashion, um, as did the vice-chancellor who's in charge of the project.
0: Yeah, okay. Is there anything that you would do differently
1: knowing what you know now? I think knowing what I know now, we the problem with most strategic plans is what happens when they end. Yes. And I think that uh, from my perspective and just the planning relation to the School of Business, mm. we had a great plan for that first three years of getting our first group of students through. Uh, yes. We didn't have such a strong plan of what was going to happen. at the uh, When we became a success, what then?
0: Okay, yes. And the processes
1: yes. for the what then. Because yes. you're so focused on launching a new campus in Sydney yes. you know, of getting that campus up and running. Yeah. And so I think in hindsight, plans do need a what then aspect of it okay. That's tagged to the end of the Yeah. Um, okay, it's not the main focus because you don't know where the future is going to lead you. No. And you don't want to spend huge amount of time on the what happens if we're a success. Mm. Um, but you need to think about... Contingencies for what happens when you're a success, not contingencies about what happens if you might fail.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And we tend to just do the what are we going to do if certain things don't happen. Yes. And not what happens if we're a success and meet our objectives.
0: Yes, and and that would then tie, I guess, to sustainability um, very strongly because if you if if you set up things from that perspective at the beginning, uh, without jumping the gun too much, that's that's part of the risk. I think people are sometimes afraid. To look that
1: far ahead in terms of success? I think it's, you know, with people are, are rightly concerned about this question of framing, goes back to some of these behavioural um, science questions. Yes. Um, how you frame a question. Mm-hmm. And I think people are, are naturally reluctant to get look too positive. Yes. Because it sounds like, well, you're so sold on this idea that, you know, success is the only option and it is automatic. Yeah. But I think that you've also got to plan for. A number of eventualities and mm-hmm. one of them should be success and yes. shouldn't be um, reticent about doing so and certainly for my area I think that that planning could have could have done a bit bit more planning. Okay
0: yeah that's good that's good to know and so based on your own business experience and the, what you do as professor at the University of Notre Dame how do you suggest leaders develop their own skills in decision making?
1: So once again some of the insights from behavioral science behavioral economics relates to uh, a real Meaningful approach to your own biases, okay. And I think that that starts. Yes. Uh, uh, the uh, there's some um, uh, reports and evidence that suggest that for strategic planning, it could be up to seventy percent of strategic plans only really consider one alternative. Oh, really? Yes. So that's yes. just the one alternative. In other yes. words, you know, people are already so uh, committed. Um, so on board with a certain path that they're not even Mm -hmm. really considering a um, a a separate set of alternatives. Mm. And so you may think you're considering a range of alternatives, but what you're really considering is different flavours of ice cream, not a question about whether it's ice cream or main course or something else that you want to eat. And so you're just doing the flavours. So, yeah, we've got alternatives. We could do project X slowly, Mm. quickly, Mm. Or at a medium speed. Mm. So really you're only really considering one strategic alternative, yes. which is to do Project X. Yeah. So it's looking at those bias questions um, and, and really taking on board the increasing body of research that we can't overcome our own biases as individuals. Mm. So that's the negative side. Mm. The positive mm. side is that there are things you can do about bias and they relate to um, appropriately structuring decisions mm-hmm. so that, There isn't dominance by one idea, so real alternatives. Yes. Not not, um, lip service to Mm. alternatives, real alternatives for the organisation. Yes. Checklists are quite important Mm. that you set up in advance. We're going to do the following steps in order to consider a range of alternatives Mm. and follow the checklist because that's a check and balance. You do that in advance, so it's no different than going on a diet. Yes. You, you, you plan your steps in advance if you want to follow through mm. on them so that you're just not tempted that, you know, that well, you know, project S is looking so good. Be nice if we started really early. Do we really need to do all that scenario testing stuff mm-hmm. at the end? Mm-hmm. Why don't we just jump on board now? Yes. So checklists can be really useful for that. Okay. Having a diverse decision-making process can be important. Okay. Um, people need to be careful by what they mean by diversity. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about genuinely different viewpoints so for example sometimes when people mean diversity they're focused on other attributes Mm. of the people involved Um, a good example u.s supreme court Mm. all but one of the judges went to an ivy league school Mm -hmm. clerked in the supreme court actually their professional careers were very very similar Yes. They're very different people, very different backgrounds, but their professional dimensions are actually very similar. Yes. So when we're saying diversity, what is the appropriate diversity mm-hmm. for the issue that you've got in front of you? Yes. And you need to be careful because it may look like a diverse group, but may in fact have very little diversity. Yes. And I find that sometimes the case. And we suffer from that sometimes in academia. You know, We think there's a diverse group set of viewpoints, but really it's just a sort of fairly narrow viewpoint from very different people.
0: Yes. Which yep. is not the same. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think it's a natural inclination to gravitate towards somebody uh, who who has a similar background or um, similar interests. And as a consequence of that gravitation, the the, the pool of diversity is, is not what it could be. So being conscious that that is what happens can be really important and help. Uh, you then make decisions and well, who else do I need to bring on board in order to help with that decision making? I
1: think that's really important but uh, a trap is to get confused between the commitment phase to the development phase. Okay. The development phase really needs that expertise base yes. and I think an error a lot of Uh, strategic planners make Mm. is to assume that an organization has all the expertise it needs to make to make a decision yes and once again that goes back to that type one expert system type Mm. two effortful investigative scientific type system yeah because your organization may not have internally Mm. the expertise it really needs and you don't even know it yeah okay And so sometimes the answer is to go outside your organisation and bring in expertise. Mm. And that's, I think, a self-monitoring aspect of a senior leader these days. You'd say, you know, this is our plan. Have we really met all those objectives we set Mm. initially for the plan? If the answer's no, then part of it may be that you need even more diverse insights outside your organisation and possibly outside your industry.
0: Okay, okay. So the the question... There is it's what don't I know in many instances, and so you're going externally to, to get that information. That's right. But
1: yeah. And so the first the first step, though, is saying because I will have biases, yes. Not may have biases yes. because I will have biases. Mm. I may not know what I don't know. Yes. And so, what's what what can a leader do about that? Maintaining diverse personal networks is a very important aspect of mm-hmm. many leaders, mm-hmm. and you often find leaders of. Uh, very successful organisations aren't um, have moved beyond being a specialist or even a manager themselves. Mm. They're out there sensing, going to conferences, talking to diverse groups of people, and that, that's a good way of actually getting a feel yes. for what's happening out there.
0: Yes. And how do you do that when you, you juggle, it as, as you do, juggle a number of roles? How do you stay uh, connected or build on that?
1: Well, in some respects, the advantage of juggling a number of roles, it forces me into proximity okay. to people <laughs> I wouldn't normally talk to. Yes. So um, as a senior manager in a fishing company, mm-hmm. I may occasionally interact with uh, fishery scientists yes. and policy managers, okay. but I wouldn't deal daily with economists, academic accountants, management specialists, marketing um, researchers, the way I do in academia. Yes. And yeah. the flip side is in academia... Um, I wouldn't deal on such a daily basis with the real practical issues of how do you keep your company working, Mm -hmm. the customer satisfied, the cash coming in the door, your employees motivated, Mm -hmm. and having to think about that in a practical way each week. So I think diverse roles, but people don't need to try doing multiple careers at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I do think that um, most people are aware of things that they think they should be doing, but they feel that they don't have enough time because it's taking away from their professional practice or their uh, leadership uh, uh, role. But I think it's the other way. And you should actually be seeking out those opportunities Mm -hmm. to extend that. And it is a little bit hit and miss because I said, you don't quite know what you're missing. But the more that you do, the more you'll see aha sort of moments, as it was for me in 2002, Mm -hmm. when, you know, I went to a conference in New York and heard um, some of the greats in relation to behavioural economics. Yes. You know, yes, that was a, an aha moment that I wouldn't have got that until Dan Kahneman wrote his book. I think it's twenty thirteen, yep. Thinking Fast,
0: Thinking Slow.
1: You know, I wouldn't have got that till ten years later.
0: Yes. Yeah. And that's a that's a significant period of time in which you've adopted a concept as a result of of. Um, going to, to an event, and and presumably that's then filtered through into the work that you've been doing.
1: Yes, yeah, so look, yeah. my general rule is that by the time a idea has hit the um, airport bookstore, yes. um, that's probably you should have read it five years earlier. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean you shouldn't read it, but you probably should have read it five years earlier or been aware of the um, the academic literature. Yes. Um, and that's the advantage of sort of being... Um, in the academic world yeah um, even if you're not on the cutting edge of any of a range of disciplines Mm -hmm. you're usually aware in a general sense from your colleagues what's exciting them and what's happening and so that's a great insight in that regard that doesn't once again make you an expert in that up-and-coming area but at least you're aware this is an up-and-coming area
0: yes absolutely that's right and so one of the things that leaders need to be looking out for in terms of decision making Um, what are the risks that um, they could be facing into
1: Um, the the i think the people are focusing on this quality of decision making Mm -hmm. sort of rather sort of quantity if you like or or big approaches so it is this sort of attempting to be as self-aware as possible yes but once again recognizing you cannot fully achieved that. And that's certainly the um, the conclusions that a number of senior researchers in the behavioural area mm. have come to. So that means you've got to be thinking about structures. Yes. Um, and that also means that to some extent as a leader, you have to be influenced by those structures. Mm. In other words, you need to get comfortable that something which is outside your expertise, which your gut says no, may actually be a yes. Okay. Okay. So gut instinct's good for areas in which you're an expert mm-hmm. and you're very well informed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that sort of you know, that information flow going through your brain. Um, but it's not so good for those areas you're less familiar with. Yes. And that's where you sometimes need to listen to the experts. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think a lot of uh, senior leaders struggle a bit when their gut instincts are in um, conflict with um, the more effortful research type approaches.
0: And what, what might be feeding that gut instinct?
1: Uh, I think that you just get used to a certain mode of thinking. Yes. Um, so my first career was a lawyer. Mm. So lawyers have a very specific mode of thinking. Mm-hmm. They work by analogical reasoning, yep. you know, by analogy. They say, this happened in this case, so something similar could happen in another case. Yes. So it's nothing to do with, for example, a statistical analysis of a set of, circumstances, yep. where that might be an outlier for many reasons. Mm-hmm. And yeah. lawyers aren't very good at picking that because they work on analogies. And sometimes you need a more statistical approach to assess a problem yes. than saying, well, this happened in the past. And um, it was one of those um, cognitive uh, biases Biases is that people can be very affected by a emotionally driven analogy mm-hmm. over hard facts. Yes, yeah. And so that that's an example um, along the lines that you're mentioning. Okay, great. So that, yes. That's, yeah, that's And I think that that's, that that's a key issue. So that's a mode of thinking. Yeah. And so if you're a lawyer, you're going to be really affected as a senior manager by that analogy. Yeah. Where somebody who perhaps came from an engineering background may not be affected at all.
0: Yes, yep. Yeah. Okay. Great, thank you. So, um, do you have any final words of advice to somebody who might be embarking on their own
1: leadership journey? The following up some of the themes that I've just mentioned, Vicky, mm. I think keeping that diversity in there is really important. Yes, um, diverse experience and background. So, and I, I know this being a professional academic, someone decides to do an MBA. It's very hard for them to do that. And their career and their family and other things. But I would certainly not recommend sort of cutting off aspects of your um, your interactions with your profession, for example, yes. because you're focusing on one aspect. Mm. I don't think that at a leadership level, that's an advantage. Mm. That's a great advantage if you're going to become the specialist in a particular medical area, for example. Yes. Yes. You need to focus to get that expertise up. Mm. But... Management leadership is about a diversity of challenges mm-hmm. and you need to be open to a diversity of approaches. Otherwise, as they say, that if all you have in your hand is a hammer, yes. every problem in the world looks like a nail. Yes. Fantastic.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today and those valuable insights. sure going be very interesting to hear about.
1: Thank you. Thank you.